I'd like to invite you this time to take a deep breath. Pause. Be still. It's been a long week. And now you have a three-day weekend. One day left. And just take a deep breath and to be still. And so today we begin this new series called Sanctify Monday to Friday, a series that I'm very excited about. I feel like um, today I'm going to preach from the soil between my toes, and I'm going to dig really, really deep, because this is, I think, my life opus. To talk about what I'm going to talk about today and for the next 10 weeks or so is going to be something very feelingly for me, something very intimate, something that goes all the way to my past. And so let me share with you a little bit about my story. Most of you know a lot of my story already. But when I was growing up, the real heroes in church for me were not the ministers in the pulpit or in the platform, but it was the people in the pews. It was the common folk, many of them at that time blue-collar workers, people that we would call laity or laypersons. And I'd like to define that word because it's going to come up a lot in this series, layperson or laity. What is a layperson? What is laity? That word means someone who is not employed in the church or in some kind of Christian ministry. A layperson is somebody that you would call, quote-unquote, secular. And I don't like that word secular. I think it's a, very, it's a word full of many problems because really when it comes down to it, any work that is done by a Christian that is ethical, you can't say, I'm a human trafficker for the Lord, or I'm a pickpocket for Jesus. There's no such thing. But any work done by a Christian that is ethical, I believe, is sacred. There is no such thing as secular work. All of your work done by you as Christians, those of you, all of you Christians, most of you Christians, your work is just as sacred as the work that pastors do up on the platform. And for me, I remember growing up and seeing those people in my church uh, that they would become my heroes, my uncles, my aunts, my fathers, the mothers. Um, I remember Jason, my friend Jason and his parents. Um, They were very educated people in Korea, but when they moved to the States, they had, you know, because of the language barrier, they just took up a very common job. They owned a store. And every morning they'd wake up early and go to the early morning prayer meetings in the Korean church. I remember the few times that I would go, maybe six or seven times a year, they were always there. So that told me, coincidentally, they went on the same days that I went, or they just were always there any, any, given, month, any given morning. And every morning I would, you know, I would go, when I did, I, would, I, I still remember their groans and their prayers. I could remember their, their moans and the, the noises that they made at those early morning hours. Strange noises to non-Korean ears probably, but noises of passion and devotion. And I knew, I knew those people. I knew Jason's parents every night. They went to bed early. They, they had a happy marriage, lived very simple lives, and they showed up week in and week out every Sunday at church with a smile on their face. 
Church is not always a happy place. Even in our lives, there's drama, there's stuff that happens. But these people lived faithfully. They lived good lives. And I admired that so much. I think of my own dear old dad. Started going to this church 30 years ago. The same church I grew up in. And today, to this day, is still a faithful member, 30 years going strong, and still serving as a layperson in that church. He's retired now, semi-retired, 78 years old, and he still does the bookkeeping for the church. It's like free, free labor, um, but almost at a staff level. My dear old dad, a longtime elder, and a beloved, you know, wonderful person. That's my hero. And so my father, I think of him, I think of all the fathers and the mothers and the uncles and the aunts that I grew up, just like our children are growing up and seeing you as their uncles and aunts and fathers and mothers. And for me, those were the heroes. I wanted to be like that when I grew up. I wanted to be somebody that lived my life faithfully, kept my head down, and just served in the church and served Monday to Friday. That for me was true spirituality. I could see through, um, what's the best word for this? I can't find the right word, so I'll just use it. I, I could see through the BS. When it came to spirituality, I could see what true spirituality was. It wasn't always just the stuff that we pontificate about from the front pulpit. The true spirituality was in the real, everyday people living Monday to Friday, day in, day out, week in and week out. And so when I ended up myself studying theology, studying to be a pastor, I had to learn theology from that vantage point. I was not satisfied with any church teaching that presumed to say that the real spirituality happens up here on the platform and only on Sundays and made it almost like you guys were second-rate citizens, that your spirituality was not the same as Sunday and that your work was somehow second-rate to the real spiritual work here on Sundays by the pastors and the missionaries and the ministers. I didn't buy it. I didn't buy it because I grew up where I saw good people living ethical lives. That, to me, was what it was really about. And so that journey took me to a place called Regent College. In fact, Regent College, um, the reframe course that you saw, is a distillation of their theology of spirituality. It's a distillation of their emphasis on regular, so-called ordinary people doing spiritual and amazing work. In fact, the first degree that they offered at that school was not the standard minister's degree, the Master of Divinity, which I ended up obtaining. Their standard degree was the Master of Arts in Christian Studies. It was a degree that was designed for working professionals who were struggling with what does my faith have to do with bread making? What does my faith have to do with uh, making the rounds as a surgeon? What does my faith have to do with science and technology? What does my faith have to do as a social worker? And these people came to Regent College in Vancouver, BC and learned about faith and spirituality for laypersons. That's why Regent College called itself the Unseminary. And um, that's why I ended up studying there because that, I think, is true spirituality. Don't give me any spirituality that says this is, this is the sacred thing and everything else is secular because as Christians, everything we do from a consecrated life is sacred. Nothing is secular. Everything that you do is your opus. It's spiritual. 
And so the Reframe course, uh, together with this whole series and this thing we're starting today until November, is going to be kind of a distillation of all of that value, all of that stuff that I learned but even felt in my soul, and I want to share with you beginning today, sanctifying Monday to Friday, because this is my goal. I want to be able to look out and see my heroes. You know that Foo Fighters song, There Goes My Hero? I, I want to be the one that says, there goes my hero. Watch him as she goes. There goes my hero, so ordinary. There goes my hero. Because me, talking about faith is my job. I get paid to do this. And really, all I do is theorize and idealize about it. You guys are the real practitioners. For you, it's real. For you, showing up week in and week out, every day, faithfully to teach people, to heal people, to do things that I could never do, that to me is faith with feet and hands. And that's why this series is, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm preaching from the, the dirt between my toes. This means a lot. And so we begin today, this series, I think appropriately with Labor Day. Now, you know, Labor Day weekend, a lot of people out for the weekend, but still, I think it was a good time for us to start because Labor Day talks about labor. And what better passage to begin with than Ecclesiastes chapter 2, which the entire section is about labor. So we begin with Ecclesiastes 2. And if you look with me on the screen or in your bulletin, verse 11, and then I'm going to skip to verse 17. Verse 11, and then skip to verse 17. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done, and the labor which I had exerted, and behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was no profit under the sun. So I hated life, for the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me, because everything is futility and striving after wind. Look it, I hated all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun, for I have to leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he'll have control over all the fruit of my labor for which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun. This too is vanity. Therefore I completely despaired of all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. When there's a man who's labored with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, he has to give his legacy to one who has not labored with wisdom, knowledge, and skill. This too is vanity, and it's even a great evil. For what does a man get in all his labor and in his striving with which he labors under the sun? Because all his days his task is painful and grievous. Even at night his mind does not rest. You know that feeling? Even at night your mind does not rest. This too is vanity. So it appears that in verse 24 there's nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen, that it's from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I'm going to talk about this, this labor, the futility of labor. I'm going to talk in two halves today. And so if you look in your bulletin, you're going to find a sheet that looks like this. Two halves, the first half I'm going to talk about is, is work bad? I want to answer this question, is work a bad thing? You know, we raise our children. I know some of our kids, um, 
even, even kids here, you work hard. My own kids, you know, we, 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 we push them to excel. And they must think that work is a punishment. They have this idea, this notion, work is something we do. But heaven, there won't be any work. So we want to answer this first question. Is work really punishment? You have to go to work Tuesday this week, Tuesday to Friday, because we're punished somehow. Is work bad is the first half, the first question. The second half is, then what is good work? Is work bad? And if not, then what is good work? So we begin with that first half, is work bad? Is work bad? And I'm telling you, I've got stories today. I've got stories for this whole series because this is something I feel so deeply about. The year was 1999, 1998. And for a two-year span, I was commuting from the borough of Queens into the borough of Manhattan to work um, at a business. It was a family business. And they were hoping with my graphic design background that maybe one day I could take over this family business and really uh, get it to the next level. It was a lucrative business. It was, it was something that... But I, I just... <laughs> I. I was better at losing money than I was at gaining money. That's why church finances are not placed in my hands. Um, and that's not to say that I was doing anything shady. It just wasn't my gift. And every morning I commuted to a job that I really hated. I mean, I really, that's why I got depressed during that season of my life. Because once I got onto the bus and I was dead tired, I wasn't going to a place that I enjoyed. It was in the middle of the it was in midtown Manhattan. It was uncomfortable. I was wearing this stuffy suit. And, um, and when I wear a suit, at, well, at that time, I don't make it look as good as June does. I mean, he looks like James Bond when he wears a suit. I wished I looked like that. And I would. And there was this one stretch of tunnel that I hated. 42nd Street Port Authority, where you transferred, I would transfer from the 7 train to the 4, 5, or 6 so that I could go downtown, and this long stretch of underground tunnel. It's not like the tunnels here in Houston, guys. The tunnels here in Houston are nice. They're colorful. They have lights. It's clean. The tunnels in New York City are long, cold, and they just look like a holding container for a herd of walking dead zombies. And we're all walking, and it's amazing because as I'm thinking about this, no one's talking, and yet it's incredibly noisy. And everybody's dead tired, but they have a steely resolve. Gotta get to work. Gotta get to work. And as you're walking in this small, low tunnel, it's not very high, there's a series of signs that appear over your head like this. And you just make your way, and you can't see the next sign because you have to walk a little bit more. And as you walk, these signs would appear. And every, every morning, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, I would walk under these stupid signs that would, ra- that would say this. <laughs> Overslept. So tired. If late, get fired. Why bother? Why the pain? And I'm walking. Just go home and do it again. And it turns out that this was, this was an art piece commissioned by I don't know who, and it's called The Commuter's Lament. And I would see that every morning and read it every single morning, and it just made my day bright and rosy. The meaningless of, meaninglessness of work. The meaninglessness of work that I, I'm so tired, 
I do this every day, and I go to sleep, and I wake up, and I do it again. What, you can just hear the voice of the author of Ecclesiastes, and he's saying, meaningless. This is all pointless. Work, you work so hard. Why do you work hard so that you can give it to somebody that will mess it all up in the next lifetime? Why do we work so hard? It's meaningless. But the thing is, the author of Ecclesiastes is not, um, I mean, it's like you want to read this when you want to be depressed, right? But he doesn't end there. The author of Ecclesiastes ends many times on a hopeful note. He's the ultimate pragmatist, the ultimate realist. He starts off in a world of theory and philosophy, meaningless, but always winds up with his two feet on the soil in which he stands and says, well, life ain't that bad. Be thankful for what you've got because in the end, this comes from God. He always ends like that because if we're stuck in our head, and I know this as a young student, college student in New York City, what does it mean? Is the ground that I walk on fake? Is there a real, is this reality or is there, you know, uh, you know everything is relative. And in the end of the day, you step your two feet on the soil that you live in on church, at church on a Sunday and you say, well, life is good, got to be grateful because what else is there? I'm thankful for what God has given. That's what he says. He concludes this whole depressing narrative in verse 24 saying, look, in the end, there's nothing better for a person than a man to eat and drink and say, my labor is good. This also I have seen that is from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? My labor is good. How many of you can say that? There is such a thing as good job match and poor job match. Because I believe labor is not a bad thing. It is good. The notion that labor is not good or that work is bad, it comes from the Bible. It comes from Genesis chapter 3. If you have your Bible, you can look at that. Genesis chapter 3. Do we have that on the screen? Okay. I'll read it to you. Genesis chapter 3 says this. This is just after Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit from the tree of knowledge. In other words, this is the beginning of the fall. This is when the dark side came in. This is when the ink dropped in the pure, clear waters and polluted all of creation. So it, it was the fall. And you hear the words God says to Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you and you'll eat the plants of the field and by the sweat of your face you will eat bread. Till you return to the ground. That's Genesis 3, 17. And so there you have it. Work is punishment because we sinned. Because Adam and Eve sinned, therefore we have to work. And I as a Christian, when I go to heaven, I ain't working no more. I'm retiring. I'm going to sit on a beach, sit my ties. I'm going to have room service every single day, and I'm not going to work. Here's the thing. That notion is unbiblical. It's unbiblical. Because before Genesis chapter 3, there's a verse in Genesis 2. Listen to this. In Genesis 2.15, it says, The Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to sit, sit back and sip my ties on a beach towel forever. Is that what it says? No. It says he put him into the garden to cultivate it and to keep it. Now, newsflash here. This is big revelation. What, is, what does this mean? This means 
before the fall, work existed in paradise. Work was designed as part of the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden is paradise. We shouldn't have to work. Actually, work was a good thing. It was in the Garden of Eden where everything was perfect because it was not a bad thing. Cursed work is a bad thing. Unethical work is a bad thing. Like I said, you can't say, I'm a human trafficker for the Lord. No such thing. Work is a good thing. In fact, you can even get earlier than that. I challenge you to get earlier than this. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. The very first verse in the entire Bible says what? In the beginning, God was sitting on a beach towel sipping Mai Tais. No. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And created, this is a word talking about work. We know this throughout the first two chapters of Genesis because the language there in the Hebrew speaks about an intentional working. Why did God rest on the seventh day for a Sabbath if he did not work? Those first six. The very first verse in the Bible talks about work. So friends, in answer to that question and the fill in the blank in the notes, is work bad? The answer is no. As I said, fallen work is bad. The toil aspect of it is bad. Unethical work is bad. But work itself intrinsically is not a bad thing. And I so want to correct this notion, this faulty notion that is so prevalent in Christianity that if I can just get away from this body and get away from that job and get away from creation and just be a free-floating spirit sipping an ethereal Mai Tai cocktail lying on a blanket that doesn't even exist on a beach that really is just spiritual. I want to get away from reality and that's what heaven is going to be for me. That is patently incorrect theologically. Do you see what I'm saying? When we talk about spiritual things as if we can escape work, escape life, escape matter and creation, that's an incorrect theological notion. Actually, that's closer to something called Gnosticism. Gnosticism. Escape from reality is not true Christian spirituality. True Christian spirituality is not an escape from reality, but the redemption of reality. It's when you, as a sanctified Christian worker, go back to your marketplace and you call out what's wrong and you work ethically, you, in a sense, are bringing us back to the Garden of Eden. This is why Tim Keller, pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, always talks about work. And he's in this great city, one of the, probably the greatest in the world in New York City, telling his professionals again and again, you have to work ethically and faithfully. Your work is sanctified work in the city. Why? Because the city can be turned into a garden. Because your good work in your fields is to bring us back to paradise. It's not about escapism and going to another place where we never work. It's about what you do today that matters. The Reframe course is going to talk about this at length. What you do in your marketplace matters, and that might push you because you're, you're facing an ethical dilemma in some of your work. At least one person has told me this. And what does it mean as a Christian in your marketplace to do the right thing? 
What does it mean for you to work not just so that you can get the paycheck or work not just so that you can go with the flow, but you work because you have a strong sense of mission and purpose because you realize you're recreating the Garden of Eden for this wonderful city of Houston. God loves cities, and I think God loves work. Work is not bad. This leads us to our second half. Then what's good work? What is good work? If work is not bad, then can you tell us, Pastor, what good work, good ethical work in the marketplace looks like? Oh, tell us, you who just do church work 24-7 or, you know, Monday to Saturday or Tuesday to Sunday, so to speak. What does good work look like? And here I'm going to attempt to tell you how to do your jobs. Here I'm going to attempt to tell you what good work is, not so much objectively or, or empirically, but I'm going to tell you through stories. It's almost a feeling. I can't really tell you how to do your job well or what good Christian work is, but I can convey a feeling. And this feeling, uh, I'll start with this story. So after two years of working in Midtown Manhattan at a job that I was not very good at, um, and I felt strongly a call to ministry at that time, to mission work, and I packed up my entire life and I moved west to the West Coast. <clears throat> and I lived on the West Coast for 11 years. But that great journey cross-country, <coughs> I remember packing everything that I owned in a little Toyota Corolla. And this little car that I just, uh, we just purchased just before the trip, about three weeks prior I made the drive, I, I learned how to drive stick shift on it. So I was practicing my stick shift driving skills while I was driving cross-country. And I loved that car. I owned it up until the moment I left Seattle and moved to Houston. That was almost six years ago. And to this day, sometimes I'm in traffic and I'm just kind of pretending and just remembering. They say it's like driving a bi- riding a bike. You never forget how to drive stick. And I, I miss that car. The thing about stick, about manual transmission, automobiles, I heard this story um, and I've been telling this analogy. Um, I don't know if you've heard it before, but I've told it for so many years now, I don't even remember where I heard it from. But as the saying goes, a long time ago, automobiles only had four gears. Is that correct, Bennett? <laughs> they only had four gears. You know why they only had four gears? Because people didn't drive as fast as we do today. Back then, they did not have um, huge highways. Driving was more of a rural or at least a local thing, so you didn't have to drive above 60 miles per hour. Um, But I guess this was post-World War II. They started building infrastructure, larger highways, and there was a need to drive faster. (laughs) On top of that, in order to accommodate for the faster speeds, they built a fifth gear into the automobiles. But most people didn't know. So imagine this, you're on the highway, and if you've ever, you don't have to drive stick to understand this. You're on the highway, and something's wrong because you're going like 70 miles per hour in fourth gear. And you're in fourth gear, and you're like, this is not really good. And you're trying to drive fast, but what's happening? High, uh, high burn. The engine is, re- the RPMs are up to six. And you can hear the engine going, And you're like, can we go faster? Can we go faster? But you're stuck in fourth gear. What you have here is a picture 
of twice as much effort and half as much distance covered. If that's not a metaphor for life, I don't know what is. Have any of you ever been stuck in fourth gear? I have. I've lived life at times in my life where it's twice as much effort with half as much progress and distance. And just, I, it's just the struggle. It sounds like the toil of work, where you're working something and you're working so hard, but you're not making any progress. This is the toil aspect of work. But one day, you do something. You have a divine inspiration. It strikes your brain, and you're driving, and you're looking at that fifth slot, and you're saying, what is that thing? I know it's not reverse, because the reverse has an R on it, and you're looking at the fifth thing, and you're saying, what if, just what if, and you depress the clutch all the way down, and then you put it into fifth gear, and you hold your breath and gradually let go. And the car lurches forward like this, and you're like, oh my God, give it gas, hurry up, give it gas, and you're giving it gas, and the next thing you know, you're flying. I didn't know. This is amazing. The RPMs now are down to 2, 1.5, and you're expending half as much energy but crossing twice as much distance, whereas before you were expending twice as much energy but covering half as much ground. You've discovered the sweet spot of work, the fifth gear of life. I call it fifth gear spirituality. If you feel like you've found that space in your work, you should be very, very grateful. You have to be grateful today because that's a gift. Because a lot of us are stuck in fourth gear and it's not fun. And if you've found that fifth gear, and some of you have, thank God today. Worship Him today. Give Him your offering, your tithe even today because He's blessed you immensely. He's blessed you immensely. Worship him, worship him. What's good work? This is my attempt at a definition. Three things, fill in the blanks in your notes. Number one, it's giftedness. You have to be gifted at what you do. To expect me to find the fifth gear in those two years when I was in Manhattan never was going to happen. I kept waiting. That's why I got depressed. I was waiting, two years, one year went by, two years went by, when am I going to start knowing how to do this thing? When am I going to get this business? When am I going to do it well? I mean, my aunt was dangling the keys to the entire, you know, we had a whole floor on 34th Street. She says, this can be yours one day. And I was waiting for when I would get it, but I just wasn't gifted at it. Giftedness is an important part to fifth gear spirituality. If you're not gifted, you'll never kick into fifth gear. People ask me, I don't know how you do it, every Sunday preparing a sermon. See, that for me is easy. That for me, I mean, if all I had to do was just write, synthesize, and deliver, that, that's the easy part of my job. I enjoy doing that. There's a propensity, a gift in it. You have to be gifted in order to hit your fifth gear. The second part, though, is preparation. Giftedness plus preparation. Alyssa, you're working hard at what you are gifted at. And you're working hard. And every Sunday, and, on, and I see your mom and dad, and I know that they're sacrificing so that you can be prepared. So when you wind up on Broadway one day, you remember the little people, okay? Preparation is an important, important part. 
It will take your giftedness to the next level. There's a third and last part to this, calling. You have to be called. And not just to ministry, but to finance, to law, to science, to economics, to whatever. You got to be called. God calls you. God calls you. I do believe that God doesn't just call ministers and missionaries and pastors. God calls people to work. How do I know this? Because there's no such thing as, I've been called to human trafficking. God called me to pickpocketing. I even went to pickpocketing school, and I'm really good at it, but no, no, you're not called to do that. Giftedness, preparation, and calling equal this thing, good work, or another word is vocation. Vocation, vocatio, is where that word comes from, the Latin word. We're almost done here. The Latin word vocatio was coined by Christians, and what that means is work that is called. You are called to a vocatio. You are called to a vocatio that is, uh, for example, called to a vocatio in education, or called to a vocatio in finance, or called to vocatio of medicine or engineering or whatnot. Vocatio is a spiritual calling, not just for ministers, but for everyone. Vocation. I conclude with two more stories, digging deep down from beneath my toes. What is good work? I can't pass without talking about chariots of fire. It's kind of a cliche, but that's a beautiful image, isn't it? Eric Liddell says, when I run, I feel God's pleasure. When I run, I feel pain. But when he runs, he feels pleasure. But the lesser-known character of this story is somebody named Harold Abrams, Abrahams. And I don't want to talk about Eric Liddell as much as I want to talk about the secondary character. When he runs, this is what he says. When I run, <laughs> I look down that corridor, right? These are Olympic runners. Four feet wide, and I've got ten lonely seconds to justify my entire existence. That's so sad. And then he says, I'm forever in pursuit. I'm forever running, and I don't even know what I'm chasing. So sad. Do you want to know what hell feels like? On Tuesday morning, go to work trying to justify your entire existence. While you're at it, sprinkle in some competitiveness and comparing yourself to others. And you can have your own private little hell from Tuesday to Friday, 9 to 5. There's a wonderful alternative side to the story. We don't have to be Harold Abrahams. We can feel the pleasure of work. Like Eric Liddell, we can feel the glory and the pleasure of what you do designed for God's purposes. And that's this last fill-in-the-blank. Number one, vocation. Your calling, your vocatio, plus what? Gratitude. I always come back to this. If you've been blessed, you have to be grateful. As St. Ignatius said, ingratitude is the greatest of all sins. God's blessed you. Be grateful. It makes your job and life easier. You have a good life. That's how Ecclesiastes, the author, ends up. Work can be rather meaningless. At least be grateful at the end of the day. Vocation plus gratitude equals heaven on earth. 
If we live like Harold Abrahams, you can experience hell on earth. But if you live this way with vocation and gratitude, it is heaven on earth. As I've said, bringing us back to the Garden of Eden. Second and last story, I promise, and I'll finish with this. There was a man named Jacob Rees, and in the late 1800s, early 1900s, he wanted, I, I, I guess, I think he wanted to go into ministry. Instead, his minister told him, Jacob, what the world needs are not more ministers, but consecrated pens. Consecrated pens. He heard that message, and he went on a campaign of social reform where he began taking pictures of the slums of downtown New York City and publishing them in a book called How the Other Half Lives. And through his consecrated pen and his consecrated lens, he was able to bring goodness and reform and healing back into the city. He exposed corruption. He called out the need for systems, social structures that helped people instead of oppressed them. And he made the world a better place. Friends, the world needs consecrated pens. They need your consecrated minds. They need your consecrated stethoscopes. They need your consecrated voice. They need your consecrated calculator or abacus. They need your consecrated rulers, minds, hearts. They need your consecrated tools of your trade. And so in conclusion, I want to give you an opportunity at this time to respond by consecrating your work. Who thought Sunday could affect Monday to Friday, right? But what I'd like to do is give you an opportunity to respond, and I've asked you to bring your business cards. If you'd like to consecrate what it is that you do for a living, then at this time, I want to invite you to come forward, and I'm going to lead by example and consecrate my own job with my business card and leaving it at the foot of the cross as a symbol of consecrating and giving my work to God. And if you don't have a business card, or even if you do, I want to invite you to come forward and to take one of these business cards in return. This is your new business card. Soli Deo Gloria. And if you're familiar with those three letters, it means to God alone be the glory. And on the bottom of all of Johann Sebastian Bach's compositions, even the secular ones, he would write SDG on the bottom as a way to, to say this was for God's glory. Even if you don't have your business card, come up. Come up and take this. You don't have to have a business card to do this. Take one of those. Stick it in your wallet. Maybe... A year or two down the line, you'll be wondering, why am I doing this? And you'll reach in your wallet, and you'll find this, and it'll be a comforting reminder. Soli Deo Gloria. So, as you're led, come forward at this time, your act of worship. We'll do it again in weeks to come. 
So if you didn't bring it today, there will be more opportunities. We'll have one more opportunity next Sunday, and then at the end of the series, we'll do it again. So if you didn't get a chance to lay down your business card. Um, I'm realizing more and more that Woven is one thing, we're a multi-ethnic church, but I also realize we're a church that cares about Monday to Friday. We're going to be a church, I believe, that empowers professionals, people from all backgrounds different walks of life, different works of life. Lord Jesus, we lay down our work at your feet at this time. No one else deserves to have that much of our lives. No one else deserves that much of our lives except the one who laid down everything for us. We don't want to give you just Sunday. We're not satisfied with that. We want to give you Monday to Friday. We want what we do to have meaning. Some of us are stuck in fourth gear and we're just looking for fifth. Help us, Lord, to just bear through this season, to bear through this season, to bear through this season. Give us perseverance. Some of us have found fifth gear and therefore have come forward to worship you this morning and to say, God, I'm so grateful. Thank you so much, God, for those who have found a wonderful way to work. I pray that you would bless everyone that's here and not here. I pray that your face would shine upon them. Thank you for the blessing of work. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been a Woven Church podcast. Woven Church is a multi-ethnic missional church that meets in West Houston. We invite you to check us out on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. To find out more, visit us online at www.wovenchurch.org That's www.wovenchurch.org